Ephesians chapter 8. Last week we made it as far as verse 18. And we started looking at this, this idea of the absolute certainties that we have in the life of a believer. As, as born-again believers, the, the, it, the, the teaching is out there all over the place. You've heard it, no doubt, that, that, you know, man, just give your life to Jesus and everything will be smooth sailing from here on out. Unfortunately, that's not at all what the Bible teaches. As a matter of fact, the Bible teaches the exact opposite. Jesus said, in this, in this world, in this life, in this time, you will have trouble. And there are troubles and there are things that we face in our lives because we are followers of Jesus. But we looked at the certainties, not only of, of the, the reality of suffering and trials and difficulties in our lives, but last week we looked at the fact that because we are born-again believers, we have this unique relationship that no one else can claim. As born-again believers, we have a relationship with the risen King of Kings and Lord of Lords, Jesus Christ. And as we just sang, because of that, we're never alone in the trials and difficulties we go through. We're never on our own. And because of that relationship also, there are restrictions on the sufferings that we face, the things that we go through in our lives. He makes sure, absolutely certain, because he's sovereign and because he loves us, that, that we will never face anything to go through that we cannot get through in his power. We talked about the fact that there's a reason there's a reason for why we go through and the results of that. We looked at that in great deal, detail last week. But as we continue now, like I said, we left off in verse 18 last week. And, and we'll kind of pick up there and, and running forward with there. But it's interesting because at times, you ever feel like you're alone in the sufferings that you go through? I mean, again, okay, we can just say, okay, yeah, I know Jesus is with me. But other than that, I'm all alone in this. Well, we looked at last week, the Bible tells us, no, the sufferings that we face are shared by by believers throughout the world as well. But interestingly, as we, as we go forward now this morning, there's also another, there's, we're also not alone because there's, there's something else that shares in, in the suffering and also the anticipation as we go through this. Let's, let's pick it up in verse 18 where we left off last week. Speaking of this suffering, he's, Paul said, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. What we go through in our lives, the suffering, the pain, the difficulties now, Paul said, when I compare that to what awaits us, can't even compare it. It's, it's not even worthy of a comparison and that is spoken from someone with a very unique perspective because he can. He, he, had, he, he went through suffering like you and I probably will never face in our lives. But we also know, as he will share later in, in, in his epistles, that he had a unique glimpse into the glory that you and I also haven't seen. He said, I can't even, it's, words can't even, it's beyond lawful for me to try to even describe to you even just the taste, the glimpse that he saw. And even from the glimpse, he said it's not worthy to compare it. He would later say in 2 Corinthians, speaking of the difficulties we say that we face, that momentary, this momentary light affliction is producing for us a weight of glory far beyond all comparison. So with that in mind, and again, we have this, this, this anchor, this rock that we hold on to because it is coming, this glory to be revealed. But notice here again, verse 19, for the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. We're not alone, but not only us, the creation all around us also longing, waiting eagerly for the revelation of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, 
but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. Interestingly, after speaking again of our suffering and the glory that is to come and the anxious longing that we have, and he circles back around to that in verse 23, but there's this interesting insertion in these verses that we just looked at. He starts speaking of the creation also longing, eagerly looking forward to this time of glory that he mentioned in verse 18. That's the continuing theme, the glory that is yet to come, but he brings the creation into it. And in that speaking of the physical creation all around us, the rocks, the mountains, the trees, the the oceans, the waters, that creation. And it's not unique here where we see kind of, if you would, human animation brought to the, the creation around us. We see in Isaiah, it speaks of the mountains crying out and the trees clapping their hands and, and that type of thing. And the, and the word that is used here to describe the anxious longing literally means to strain the neck, kind of like if you would, kind of standing on your tiptoes, looking with anticipation, you know, she'll be coming around the mountain when she comes, kind of the, the creation that way. But it's interesting when we look at this, because why would creation be feeling this? What is, what is it that is speaking of? And that's what he outlines later on when he speaks of the futility Futility carries with it this idea of emptiness, literally unable to achieve a goal or a purpose. Here's the bottom line. Because of man's sin, none of creation exists as God intended it or created it. If we look at Genesis chapter 1 and 2, after creation, it says that God looked at everything that he made and it was good. And in Genesis 1 and 2, there were no earthquakes. There were no hurricanes. There were no tornadoes. There was no drought. There was no flooding. There was no disease. There were no, no such thing as rabies in Genesis 1 and 2. As a matter of fact, there was no predator and prey. There was no fear in the animal kingdom. There was no death in Genesis 1 and 2. Genesis chapter 3 speaks of the fall of man. When falling and coming under temptation, when, when God said, all of it is yours, but the one thing you cannot do is eat from this one tree. And of course, then the temptation came through the serpent, through Satan, to Eve first, and then to Adam. Well, did God really say that? Did, and, and if he said that, did he really mean it? That if you, really, if you ate this that you'd really die? You know what? He's holding out on you. Bottom line is, if you eat this, you're going to be just like him. And so they, they bought the lie. They ate of the forbidden fruit. And sin entered the world. And in Genesis chapter 3, verse 17, when God is speaking to Adam about the repercussions of his decision to listen to the, to the temptation instead of obeying him, he says this, cursed is the ground because of you. The ground, the creation all around you is also cursed because of your decision to disobey me. In Romans chapter five, we looked at it, that sin entered the world through one man and death through sin. 
And here we see in our text here in in chapter 8, it says for creation, verse 20, was subjected to futility. This process of death not being able to fulfill its intended purpose, what it was created initially for, not willingly. Not because of anything that creation did, but because of sin, but because of him, that is God, who subjected it in hope. Him who subjected it. God put this on creation, but verse 21 speaks of, again, this hope, that in hope, creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to, in corruption into freedom. God had the power as the creator to subject it to futility, but also has the power to free it from that slavery to corruption. Guys, bottom line is, Creation's only hope is not Al Gore. It is not the tree hugging, save the planet evolutionists. Creation's only hope is Jesus Christ. The Bible speaks of a day when things will be restored to the way it should be. It speaks of a day when everything will be made right, and that happens when Jesus comes back. When when Jesus comes and sets and rules and reigns during his millennial kingdom. Isaiah speaks of that. He says it in, in Isaiah chapter 11. It speaks of this day that is yet to come. The wolf will dwell with the lamb. The leopard will lie down with the young goat. The only time that happens right now is for dinner, but only one of them is enjoying it. The calf and the young lion and the fatling together, a little boy will lead them. Also a cow and a bear will graze. Their young will lie down together and the lion will eat straw like an ox. Chapter 35, verse seven, it says, the scorched land will become a pool and the thirsty grounds of springs of water. That day is coming. And by the way, when I kind of make a little fun of, of the, the, the tree-hugging people and everything. We absolutely, as Christians, need to be good stewards of everything God has entrusted us to, and that includes the world around us. But if you really want to positively affect the environment, pray that Jesus comes back soon. And we know that the next thing on the prophetic calendar is the rapture of the church, that's gonna, that'll, that, then things are really going to speed up really quickly at that point. And we know the only thing holding that back is the, is the fullness of the Gentiles coming in when that last person that is, that to, to, need, is to be saved is saved, and, and we're, we're out of here. And that, like I said, that really speeds up the calendar. So if you're here today and you haven't accepted Jesus and you're an evolutionist and you're a save-the-planet person, get saved today, you might be the one holding the whole thing up and you could save the planet today. <laughs> but in hope, it is subjected in hope. And praise God for hope. And creation holds on to that hope. The glory to be revealed, verse 18, and in verse 21, you know, the freedom of the glory of the children of God. You see, it's all tied together. It's all linked to us. 
the revealing of the sons of God. And here we have this amazing mystery again that we've kind of looked at the last couple of weeks together and continue on this week and we'll continue on next week as we move through chapter eight. This kind of this weird combination of already and not yet perfectly brought together. See, we are children of God. We saw that last time. We see that in verse 14. For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God, not will be, are sons of God. Verse 16, the Spirit testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. But notice it's speaking of the, the revelation, the, of the revealing of the sons of God. And bottom line is, again, we already are, but there's, it's not fully developed within us. We still, because we, we are housed in this flesh, as we've talked about, as we've gone through chapter six and seven and eight, this traitor within us, this battle that we've sp spoken of, the spirit within us and our flesh, the fact that we still suffer and our weakness that we have. Again, 1 John chapter three, the first couple of verses, there are great uh, reminders of this. It says, see how great a love the Father has bestowed on us that we would be called children of God, and such we are. Again, not will be, are. For this reason, the world does not know him. Beloved, we are now children of God, and it has not yet appeared what we will be. We know that when he appears, we will be like him, because we will see him as he is. That's the revelation that's spoken of. When he appears, it's not yet revealed what we will be, even though we are children of God. The process isn't completed yet as far as to what we will be. Colossians chapter three says, when Christ who is our life is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. And we suffer along with creation, or as it says in here, creation suffering along with us in this sense of incompleteness, a sense of frustration, longing for that total transformation when he comes and makes all things right. The pains of childbirth is mentioned here, interestingly, as, as the process with which the, the creation groans and suffers right now. Childbirth, though I have not experienced it firsthand, I've experienced it secondhand a couple of times, and I understand what is being spoken of here. Labor pains as it's coming along, as the baby gets closer to being delivered, the frequency and intensity seem to pick up quite a bit. But also, in addition to that, the anticipation. And... That's what, that's what I think Paul is focusing on here. That's certainly what Jesus was focusing on in John chapter 16 when he said, truly, truly, I say to you that you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will grieve, but your grief will be turned into joy. Whenever a woman is in labor, she has pain because her hour has come. But when she gives birth to the child, she no longer remembers the anguish because of the joy that a child has been born into the world. Therefore, you too have grief now, but I will see you again and your heart will rejoice and no one will take away your joy from you. As we need to look at the world around us and when we see the world falling apart, we need to understand that God's plan is coming together. He, he said that this would take place. 
And Paul points to that here as we see the intensity, we see the, the, the frequency of these things happening around us in the world. We need to know and have that anticipation with creation, looking for that day. And he draws us back into it here in verse 23. He said, and not only this, but we ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves grown within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. The, the first fruits of the Spirit. The Holy Spirit, as born-again believers, the Bible teaches that the Holy Spirit is, is, is given to us, dwells within us. At the moment of our conversion, the moment we are born again, the Holy Spirit takes up residence within us. And by the way, he becomes a permanent resident within us. And there's great comfort that comes from that. And we'll talk about that again in, in a moment. But a couple of things that, that Paul touches on here in verse 23 about, about this within us now. is again, this great anticipation that we have because of the first fruits, the Holy Spirit, if you would, gives us a foretaste of what is yet to come. We kind of get that, the, the idea there of, of we, we get a little bit of a taste but the meal hasn't been complete, fully served yet. That anticipation, because we have the fruit of the Spirit within us, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. We have those things because the Spirit is within us, yet not fully developed. We, we understand what it means to have power over sin in our life now because, that we never had before because the Spirit is within us, yet we still have the presence of sin around us and in us because we still have this flesh that we're carrying around. And with that brings the frustration in anticipation, well, along with the anticipation, groaning within us. One, point, one important uh, point to make, there is a difference between moaning and groaning. <laughs> the groaning that is spoken of here, again, within us, this, this in, within our spirit. Moaning is what we do out loud when we're telling everybody else about it and complaining about it. That's not what we're, that, that's, that's not it. This, this internal groaning, this longing, this desire for that moment when, when sin no longer is an issue at all. And I don't know about you, but I can't wait for that. My, my spirit groans within me because I so want to be like Jesus in everything I think and say and do. And there's a day coming when it will be that way. But it's not yet. And because of that, anything in my life that is not Christ-like causes the spirit within me to groan. I'm spiritually sensitized as we all should be and, and are as born-again believers, not content with the current state that we're in. Part of the, the work of the Holy Spirit within us. Tells us, Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, for indeed in this house, that in this flesh, in this body that we're still in, we groan, longing to be clothed with our dwelling from heaven in as much as we having put it on, will not be found naked. For indeed, while we are in this tent, 
We groan being burdened because we do not want to be unclothed, but to be clothed so that what is mortal will be swallowed up by life. Paul speaks of the time when that happens, when this corruption, this corruptible, will put on incorruption. When we, when we get our new bodies, our new, when, we are, when we are in that glorified state, speaking of when we are revealed, the revealing of the sons of God in verse 19, the glory that is to be revealed that we speak of in verse 18, when that happens, guys, the freedom that we have, freed from the, the very presence of sin. But in the meantime, we moan, or I'm sorry, we groan. We don't moan, we groan. This physical weakness that we go through, the suffering, the pain that we have physically as we, as we grow older, as we experience things in the world, the emotional things that we go through, very, very real, but also the spiritual weakness that we still have between justification and glorification, waiting eagerly, the adoption as sons, the redemption of the body again, when that moment comes. Again, that, that interesting mix of the already and the not yet, already children of God, already the power over sin in our life, but the not yet until we are fully clothed. Philippians chapter 3, for our citizenship is in heaven from which we eagerly wait for a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory by the exertion of the power that he has even to subject all things to himself. I love this because, again, we have this, this frustration but the anticipation we have, again, isn't something that we just, isn't just wishful thinking, isn't just a high probability. It's an absolute certainty. Notice again that in verse 24 now it says, for in hope we have been saved. In hope we have been saved. Absolute certainty of that day that is coming. But hope that is seen is not hope for who hopes for what he already sees. But if we hope for what we do not see with perseverance, we wait eagerly for it. In hope, we have been saved. Certain, absolutely certain, but it's still incomplete in, the, in, in our lives. We don't fully recognize it yet. But that's where it comes with, with perseverance. And we talk about that, the sufferings that we go through, the difficulties, the trials that we move through, develop perseverance in our lives. It allows us to walk by faith and not by sight. And that is so important as we, as we move through this. Because again, if we're just looking with our physical eyes at the world around us and the situations that we find ourselves in, the enemy is, can easily convince us that, that we're, we're not on the right track, that we're going the wrong direction, that things aren't the way that, that God promises. But as we walk by faith, he who is faithful, he who is the one who can never lie, he who is the one who is only good, he who is the one who is absolutely sovereign is always faithful, always faithful. Hebrews chapter six says this, in the same way, God desiring even more to show the heirs of the promise, the unchangeableness of his purpose 
interposed with an oath so that two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have taken refuge would have strong encouragement to take hold of the hope set before us. This hope we have as an anchor of the soul. A hope both sure and steadfast and one which enters within the veil. This hope that we have, as we see in Romans chapter five, this hope does not disappoint. And you know why it doesn't disappoint? Because it can't disappoint. Two unchangeable things it speaks of, and it it talks about the unchangeableness of his purpose. God never, ever changes. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is the eternal God, all-powerful God. That is who we place our hope in. The integrity of his promises. Paul, so certain of that, says in Philippians chapter one, I'm confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. Absolute certainty that what God promises, he is not only able to fulfill, but he absolutely will because, of his, because his word says it, because he promises it. And he goes on in, in verse 26, again, speaking of the Holy Spirit, this guarantee we have, but this is how we can, again, know for sure. The Spirit, we looked, saw that, we looked at again, verse 16, the Spirit himself testifying with our spirit that we are children of God within us. Verse 26, in the same way, the Spirit also helps our weaknesses. For we do not know how to pray as we should, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. The Holy Spirit coming alongside us, our constant companion, our comforter, our helper to help in our weaknesses. And guys, we need help. Because we have a lot of weaknesses still. We're talking about that day that is yet to come, but we're still in this day here now facing all of the things that we face and we can walk through this, this life in these circumstances with absolute confidence, again, not in our own abilities, but because the Holy Spirit walks along with us, helping us. He gives an example of of how he helps in our weaknesses when he's speaking of prayer. And that is so important because we know this as believers. Prayer is a vital part of our lives. And we talk of that often, that we need to pray continually. We need to pray individually. We need to pray corporately. We need to pray all the time. But notice this part right here. He says, we don't even know how to pray as we should. I, I don't, I don't want to ask for a show of hands, but if we're all honest, every one of us would raise our hand and say, you know what, I don't pray like I should. I, if I were to ask, and I, again, won't ask for a show of hands because I don't want you to lie, <laughs> to say, is there anybody here who's satisfied with their prayer life? I hope not, because all of us 
All of us are, are limited now in our weakness, our imperfect perspectives when it comes to prayer. We're so, we're so shallow and self-centered in our prayer, totally missing the grand perspective that God has for, for things. Our finite minds, so limited. Our human frailties and our, our spiritual limitations. Verse 26 is, is so great in so many ways because it brings us all to the point where we, where we need to be, understanding we do not know how to pray as we should. The next word is so glorious, though, but <laughs> the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. Too deep for words. Imperceptible to us. The Holy Spirit communicating with the Father interceding for us as we pray. Because we don't know what to pray. We don't know how to pray. This perfect intercession that goes on, because verse 27 tells us that, that the Father knows the mind of the Spirit because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Perfect intercession on our behalf. I saw this yesterday that there are three responses to prayer from God. One is yes, one is no, and thirdly is you've got to be kidding. <laughs> I think that's probably the main response to a lot of my prayers. <laughs> you've got to be kidding. I heard uh, that Martin Luther was once quoted, and again, I'm loosely quoting it, but it was kind of tongue-in-cheek the way he said it, but there's some reality to it. He said, it's a good sign if the opposite to your prayer takes place. As a matter of fact, you should be worried if your prayer is answered exactly the way you pray it. Because again, our perspective is so limited we're, our perspective is limited so much by, by what is directly affecting us right here, right now. Now, we don't have an eternal perspective in most of our prayers, hardly any of our prayers. We don't, have, we don't have an understanding. God is infinite. God knows everything. He knows what's already happened. He knows what's yet to come. He knows everything, and he holds it all in the palm of his hands. That's why it is so vital for us to pray and, and attaching to the end of our prayer, Lord, if it's your will, your will be done ultimately. I know I've shared this with you before, but there was a prayer I was praying years ago. I said, Lord, save our business. We were, it was, the economy was crashing, everything was going on, and I was praying on a daily basis, Lord, bring customers, we need to make some sales, we need to do this stuff, and on and on and on, and, and bottom line, there's people that will write books that said I should have been speaking success over my business, and it was because I wasn't praying in a certain way that it was. Well, you know what? I did speak success over my business because I said, God, your will be done, and his will was going out of business. And that's the greatest success that has ever took place in that thing. It needed to be done away with because he had other plans for me. And I praise him every day for that. Now, don't get me wrong. The Bible says 
that in everything that we go through, we are to take our petitions, we are to take our requests to God. He desires us to come to him in all things, in everything we face. Make your requests known to God. But when you make your requests known to God, let me just give you a, a little suggestion. Don't make it multiple choice. <laughs> and if you do make it multiple choice, make sure you include none of the above as one of the options. Because his plans are so much better. And I am so glad that the Holy Spirit intercedes especially in those you've got to be kidding moments when he says, disregard that, here's what we need. And I say that especially to those of you who are going through an extremely difficult time right now, facing great suffering, whether it's relational, whether it's economic, whether it's physical, regardless of whatever it is, make your requests known to God. But then you leave it and say, but God, your will be done. Because he has a greater plan than we could possibly ever imagine. He, he is the one who holds everything together. He is the one when, again, when his time comes, when he returns, everything will be made right again. And, and as, as we've spoken, when that takes place, the glory that is to be revealed, we can't even compare this current suffering, the things that we're going through now. We, can't even, we won't even compare it then. As a matter of fact, I, I'm almost absolutely certain of the fact we won't even be thinking about it. We're not going to be like, yeah, but Jesus, remember, remember that trial when I was asking you to remove, remove that and to change that and everything, and then it'll be just like that, oh, yeah, and your grace was sufficient. Because here I am. The Holy Spirit helping us in our weakness helping us get through it moment by moment, keeping our, keeping our attention focused where it needs to be, the groaning inside of us, never satisfied with where we are spiritually, anything that is not Christ-like in our lives being brought up to the surface and we groan and we confess that and we move forward in our, in our walk with the Lord, but also that great anticipation of that day when everything's gonna be made right. No more sin, no more suffering, no more sorrow, no more pain. A day is coming. And in the meantime, Jesus, Jesus made, uh, made many promises. But one of them that he made is he said, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. I'm humble and gentle in heart. You're carrying a heavy burden today. You are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. You're a born-again believer today, and you are carrying a heavy burden. His desire is to have you bring that and give it to him. He doesn't, he doesn't, he doesn't say he'll take it away. He said he'll pull it with you. He'll carry it with you. And he, and he says, and learn from me. 
That means as we walk alongside him, we, we, we look to him, we learn from him, that whole idea of being yoked together. The reason that was done largely for two oxen especially was when the younger oxen would learn from the older, more mature one as they walked alongside pulling the load. And guess which one pulled the majority of the weight? <laughs> but never alone. And that's what Jesus promises. Bring it to him. But again, his will his will be done. And know that again, as a believer, the Holy Spirit is in you. He's your comforter. He's your helper. He is your constant companion, continually interceding for you. If you're here today and you have never given your life to Jesus, you've, you're not born again. I have to say, Virtually everything I've just said doesn't apply to you, but it can. It can right here, right now. I want to I plead with you today, if you have never done it, that today you follow Jesus. That today you put down everything at his feet and you follow him. The Bible said, he made this promise. He said, anyone who comes to me, I will in no way push out. I will in no way cast out. Everyone who comes. His desire today is to forgive your sin. His desire today is to save you. The Bible says that it's not his desire that any should perish, but that all would come to repentance. All would come to the knowledge of the truth. And the only reason you know what I'm talking about right now is because the Holy Spirit is allowing you to understand this. Perhaps even for the very first time, bearing witness in your heart, and you know I'm speaking to you. It's a matter of responding right now. A prayer does not save you. Jesus saves you. The Holy Spirit inside you, and it's a matter of surrendering your life to him. The Bible says that if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord. And believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord. That means that you, you, you make him Lord of your life. You submit and surrender everything to him. You believe that he suffered and died in your place to pay your sin debt. You give him your life today. And as I mentioned earlier, we might be just waiting for you. And we all go to meet him together. But you can know today that your sins are forgiven. You can know today that you'll never face another trial, situation, alone again. Because the King of kings and Lord of lords, your creator who loved you so much he died for you, will be your constant companion forever. Would you please stand? Let's, let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we thank you. We thank you for who you are. We thank you for who we are in you. And Lord, we, we know the reality all around us. There is suffering everywhere, and it is because of sin. It is because all have sinned and fallen short of your glory. It is because the world has rejected you. There's great suffering around, but Lord Jesus, we also realize that as, as your children, as born-again believers, we still suffer 
And there's suffering that comes against us even because of who we are in you. You promised that that would be the case, but you also promised we would never go through it alone. You promised that you would put restrictions on that. You would carry us through it. And Lord, we thank you for the gift of your spirit within us, comforting us, empowering us, interceding for us. Because Lord, we don't know how to pray as we should. Lord, as we do right now, as we lift up the very real situations in our lives, Lord, we, we do make our requests known to you. Lord, would you please move in, in powerful ways? But Lord, your will be done. If you're here today and you've never taken that step, you've never surrendered your life to Jesus, you've never trusted in him and him alone for your salvation, it is a matter of, of repentance, turning from your sin, turning from your way of life, turning from the direction you're going and turning to Jesus. And just you'll go before him in your heart, say, God, I'm a sinner and I, I have blown it. My life does not please you and I know it. But I know that you, you paid the price for all of that on the cross for me. I don't deserve it. But Jesus, I ask you to come into my life now. Would you take control? Would you forgive me of my sin? Would you give me this, this gift of eternal life? And Lord, I desire to follow after you. So, so give me your spirit, the Holy Spirit within me as my helper, as my comforter, as my guarantee of the glory that is yet to come. And Lord, we pray that the seed of the gospel that has been planted today, Lord, would, would penetrate those hearts. So Lord, we know this is a work that only you do. So we pray for lasting fruit. We thank you, Lord Jesus. We thank you and praise you. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen.